Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa and on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tracy Boomgaard and Fiile Lingwati. In our top stories, the DRC opposition slammed President Kabila's new transitional government. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma begins state visit to Tanzania and leaders gather in London for a conference on Somalia. In economics news, South Africa and Tanzania set to boost relations and in sports news, tough rugby World Cup draw for South Africa's Springboks. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. World leaders have gathered in London for a major summit on Somalia. They are expected to discuss increasing humanitarian aid to Somalia and improving security in the country. Speakers will include British Prime Minister Theresa May, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres and Somali President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed. The BBC's James Landell reports. May and other world leaders believe more needs to be done to support the new Somali government. They're expected to agree a plan to train more Somali forces to replace the African Union troops that are currently fighting al-Shabaab extremists. The summit is also expected to agree to send more international aid to tackle the growing threat of famine. The fear is that if nothing's done, Somalia could slip back into the chaos and conflict of recent years. Meanwhile, Somali President Mohamed Abdullahi says he wants to defeat the al-Shabaab militants. Within two years, the extremists have been driven out of the capital, Mogadishu, but still control large parts of the country. Famaja says the fight against extremism is one of three goals of his presidency. Definitely, uh, we will engage and energize and mobilize our people to deal with al-Shabaab and terrorism. We will do everything in our power that al-Shabaab will not be a problem to Somalia and the rest of the world after two years. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has called for an investigation into Monday's deadly attack on peacekeepers in the Central African Republic. Four blue helmets were killed when armed men ambushed their convoy near the village of Yogofongo, located near the border with the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Ten others were evacuated to the capital, Bangui, while one peacekeeper is still missing. Guterres has strongly condemned the attack, underlining that such incidents may constitute a war crime. He's urged the authorities in the Central African Republic to investigate the incident and to swiftly bring the perpetrators to justice. The European Union says it's committed to helping African states deal with the root causes of migration. Skeptics have spoken out against the huge inflow of African migrants into Europe. The EU's biggest economy, Germany, has invested billions of U.S. dollars as an incentive to curb migration. Vice President of the Pan-African Parliament, Bernadette Lahai, has stressed the importance of cooperation between the EU and African states in addressing the impact of migration. Both the European and the African also look at how to look at the advantages and the disadvantages of migration. Of course, uh, for the African point of view, we have been able to estimate the remittances 
you know, of our migrants is very, very high. But also, we are encouraging the return of our migrants because the, most of them have been there. They have garnered a lot of skills, a lot of, especially in technological explosion. We are encouraging them to come back to share also with the capacities that they have built. And finally, at least 14 cases of life-threatening cholera have been confirmed in several parts of Yemen. The United Nations estimates that more than 19 million Yemenis are in need of humanitarian assistance and around 3 million displaced following years of conflict between government forces and Houthi rebels. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric says the cholera cases have all been recorded since the 27th of April. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A DRC's main opposition bloc has criticized President Joseph Kabila's new government announced earlier this week. The opposition says the new cabinet violates a previous agreement. Kabila, in power since 2001, struck a deal in December with Congo's main opposition bloc to stay on after his mandate expired, provided he held elections by the end of 2017. But Kabila's opponents suspected he intends to repeatedly delay elections until he can organize a referendum to let himself stand for a third term. Kabila denies those accusations, saying the election delays are due to challenges registering millions of voters and budgetary constraints. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. People on the ground here in the Democratic Republic of Congo are looking at the newly appointed government as a team of actors who have come for their own interests. Most of them describe the appointment as a non-event and the only important thing they expect from this government is the organization of the elections before the end of the year and according to last December agreement. One of the Kinshasa inhabitants, Isaac Nguenza, had this to say. Everybody has a unique wish. That is the organization of elections by the end of this year according to the December 31st agreement, which was signed by politicians from majority and from the opposition rally. Our expectation is to go to the polling session to vote for new leaders. But when we are not happy with this government is when we understand the authorities that are in the government, they are saying that it's quite impossible to organize elections this year because of the delay they have been getting because of technical problems with the electoral commission where we are shocked is when they cannot tell us exactly when the elections will take place if not by december 31st of this year but at least they can clear people's minds saying the election will take place in 2018, in the month of May or June, people need to be fixed on when exactly we will go to the polling station to vote for new leaders. That's why you see you can talk to the people here. Nobody is anxious with this government. It's a non-event. The appointment has come more than a month after President Joseph Kabila appointed Bruno Chibala as Prime Minister to lead the government of national unity with main task to take the DRC people to elections before the end of next December. Meanwhile, social conditions of people here in the DRC continue to deteriorate and the new cabinet has more to do, if it will. These other Congolese we met on the streets here in Kinshasa emphasized the organization of elections. Saint-Germain Ebenko expressed his disappointment for a government with only six women and said it's just the old cabinet that has come back. I'm not in agreement with uh, this government. Uh, it's a bogus one. 
59 ministries with only six women. That's the problem. The same faces have come back. I'm not in agreement with that. It's not a new government. It is an old government that they have established. They must review it again. They have to enable us to get in the elections. They must put in place all the process that lead to the organization of the elections. That's our expectations. The only things that we need is the putting in place of all the processes that lead to the organization of the elections. Most of political actors from the opposition, such as the opposition rally led by Felix Tshisekedi, are not part of the new government supposed to be that of national unity. The UN mission here continues to plead for inclusivity and believes that's the only way for stability here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Channel Africa Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamwezi. South Africa and Tanzania are set to elevate their political and economic relations to a higher level when President Jacob Zuma and his counterpart John Magufuli meet today. President Zuma flew to Tanzania last night on a two-day state visit. Both presidents will preside over the signing of a binational commission which will monitor relations and economic activities between the two sister republics. Debo Mukobo has more. Welcome to Dar es Salaam, a city of over 6 million people and the capital of this East African country. Walking in the city center, South Africa's presence looms large in the form of familiar boards advertising Standard Bank and Vodacom, among others. And these are just a fraction of the more than 150 South African companies doing business in Tanzania in various sectors. The two countries have long-standing relations forged during the struggle days. This country used to be the second home for many exiles and the famous 1969 Morogoro conference that shaped the direction of the ANC took place here under the watchful eye of then ANC President Oliver Tambo and the first Tanzanian President Julius Nyerere. And now with a two-way trade of 10 billion rand, Tanzanians are hopeful the meeting between the two presidents will expand economic opportunities for the two nations. I am very sure Tanzania can benefit a lot from South Africa because among sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa is a bit more developed. So we have a lot to learn and a lot to benefit from South Africa. Specific areas where they can help is uh, minerals because I know there's a lot of mining in South Africa and there's a lot of mining here too. So I think South Africa is more advanced and more experienced. We can learn a thing or two. The late Mandela did a lot to Tanzania so the relationship between Tanzania and South Africa is very great and I think the way he said a lot about Tanzania and South Africa, how they're going to continue their activities, economicize. But in a twist of tragic coincidence, the two countries are reeling from bus accidents that claimed lives of many school children. Transport Minister Joe Maswangai will form part of President Zuma's delegation to exchange views with his counterpart. And this state visit will see the elevation of relations between the two countries to a binational commission to be co-chaired by both presidents as International Relations Minister Maite Nkwana Mashabani explains. Bionational Commission is the highest level of commitment of heads of states to deal with issues political, economic, security and development. The Bionational Commission is led by heads of states, so it gives them an opportunity to meet annually and as they meet, they also have an opportunity to make a reflection on global politics geopolitics, global economic development, but also talk about our own neighborhood in the continent, our sub-region of SADC, but also focus on tangible outcomes. Minister Nkwana Mashabani also says the visit will seek to unlock human capital of the two nations with skills transfer high on the agenda. Their excellencies will also be focusing on real tangible joint projects that enhance trade and investment partnership which leads to industrialization. Amongst the ministers, we also, as I said, Minister of Science and Technology, they'll also be focusing on issues of transfer of skills and technology, practically even mentioning the names of the beneficiaries of this program so that Somovco and all other initiatives of the past don't come to nil. There will also be a business forum which will be used to identify economic opportunities. 
And while political relations between the two countries are well documented, analysts say there is a lot more room to increase economic activities, insisting that this forum could well be that platform. I am Tebumokobo Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has applied for leave last week's leave to appeal last week's decision by the North Gauteng High Court in an urgent application which was brought by opposition party the Democratic Alliance. The DA approached the High Court in a bid to force President Zuma to provide reasons for his decision to dismiss former Finance Minister Pravin Gordon and his deputy Mkabisi Jonas on the grounds that the move was irrational. The court ruled in the DA's favour and gave President Zuma until today to comply with the verdict. Amos Pajo has more. In the papers, President Jacob Zuma argued that Judge Bashir Valley's interpretation of Section 53 of the Constitution, which relates to the President's powers to appoint and dismiss cabinet ministers, violates the separation of powers. He further argues that the court erred in law by, amongst others, failing to consider whether the remedy sought in the review application can ever be obtained assuming that he undertook to provide records requested by the DA and that the information contained in the official statement to announce the reshuffle meet the test of rationality. However, the DA's federal chairperson, James Self, has described the president's latest move as a delaying tactic. We are still in the process of uh, uh, studying those papers and consulting our lawyers, um, but it is, in our view, clearly an attempt to frustrate and delay the handing over of the record of decision in what, in what was patently an irrational and illegal decision. President Zuma further wants the DA to provide a full version of the so-called intelligence report which the party claims prompted the president's decision to reshuffle cabinet. Self says this is a bizarre demand. It was the uh, senior office bearers within the ANC such as the deputy president and the speaker of the National Assembly who referred to the fact that the president had used the so-called intelligence report uh, as the basis for firing Uh, Mr. Gordon. So if anybody has to produce the intelligence report, it is the president that has to do so. At the same time, the Helen Sussman Foundation has filed an application with the Constitutional Court in a bid to declare President Zuma's March 30th cabinet reshuffle unconstitutional. The foundation's Anton van Delsen explains. We don't want the courts to interfere with every executive decision, but it's clear law that if if a decision made by the executive is irrational, therefore it is unlawful. An irrational decision means that the way in which you got to the decision has got nothing to do or uh, nothing logical to do with the purpose for which it was taken. And I think in these circumstances we feel that uh, there's a very good case that we have put in our application to the the, uh, uh, Constitutional Court. It remains unclear when will the Helen Sussman Foundation's application be heard. I'm Amos Paro in Johannesburg. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. African parliamentarians say that they hope the... that France President-elect Emmanuel Macron will work towards improved relations with the African continent. A 39-year-old centrist registered a decisive victory against the far-right contender Marine Le Pen earlier this week. A group of the European Union Parliament is currently in South Africa to attend the fourth session of the Pan-African Parliament currently underway in Midran, north of Johannesburg. Tsepwe Kaneng has more. Emmanuel Macron's victory was not only celebrated in the majority of European capitals but also in Africa. Many leaders on the continent issued congratulatory messages with the hope that his victory will usher in a radical change in France-Africa policy. Coordinator of the European Union Security and Defense Policy, Michael Gathler, has welcomed Macron's victory over defeated far-right candidate Marine Le Pen. I mean, if Mrs. Le Pen had won the election, it would have been a disaster, a catastrophe for Europe, but also for Africa. If you look at the amount of racism and, and, and hate, I mean, it's, it's outrageous. 
uh, we are in Europe, we are so happy to have an open-minded, pro-European, very problem-conscious, young uh, and energetic uh, uh, president in France. France continues to yield huge influence in its former colonies in Africa. But whilst Macron said little about the continent during his campaign trail, analysts believe that he will prioritize the fight against Islamic militancy on his African agenda. France has suffered a number of terrorism attacks with suspects linked to African countries. There are about 4,000 French troops deployed in several hotspots, especially in West Africa and the Sahel region. EU's Michael Gathler says he's optimistic that Macron will not pursue a neo-colonial policy in Africa. Uh, with France's history in Africa and the, the close links, uh, human links, economic links, uh, um, also military links, all these links uh, that exist uh, are uh, from the French side, I think, remain an, an impetus to have a look on Africa. But I'd, I say very clearly as a non-French, I uh, see uh, French and others' engagement in Africa best served uh, if we do it together as Europeans. And uh, that is why I always describe the European Union as a non-continuation of old colonial links, but as a new deal. During his presidential race, Macron pledged to lobby G20 leaders during the July summit in Germany to increase economic development aid to African countries. However, Eurosceptics have spoken out against the huge inflows of African migrants into Europe. Vice President of the Pan-African Parliament, Dr. Bernadette Lahai, has stressed the importance of cooperation between the European Union and African states in addressing the impact of migration on their respective economies. Both the European and the African also look at, have to look at the advantages and the disadvantages of migration. Of course, uh, for the African point of view, we have been able to estimate the remittances you know, of our migrants is very, very high. But also, we are encouraging the return of our migrants because they, most of them have been there. They have garnered a lot of skills, a lot of, especially in technological explosion. We are encouraging them to come back, to share also with the capacities that they have built. If you go to China, you go to some countries now, you know, their diaspora, you know, are returning with huge uh, repertoire of skills, you know, and sometimes also with a lot of uh, capital, uh, but some may even also now have developed strong links, you know, from where they are coming from. The European Union has pledged to continue its financial support for the African Union and the Pan-African Parliament. Tsepo Iganeng in Midrand. Let's go back in time to today in 1997. Chairman of South Africa's Pan-Africanist Congress and Disciplinary Committee announces that former party president and Robben Island detainee Clarence Makwetu had been expelled from the party for three years for bringing the party into disrepute. He was replaced by Bishop Stanley Makhoba as the party president. That was today in history in the year 1997. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Heads of government and representatives from international organizations will assemble in the UK today for a conference on Somalia. It's been five years since the first London-Somalia conference, which was aimed at addressing the root causes of the country's many problems. The event comes as Somalia's president, Mohamed Famadro, and his government are struggling to maintain stability under the threat of Islamist militants from the Al-Shabaab group. The BBC's Africa security correspondent Tommy Oladipo reports. If the rest of us just sit back and look on, we will pay a price for doing so. So as an international community, it is in all our interests to try and help the Somali people to address these problems. A stark warning by the former British Prime Minister David Cameron as he opened the 2012 London-Somalia conference. It was a meeting aimed at delivering a new international approach to Somalia. That was after several local and regional interventions. And then the conference was followed by a similar one in Turkey and then another in London in 2013. I think it was a waste of time in, in 2013. It's again a waste of time. Ibrahim Farah is from the Institute of Diplomacy and International Studies at the University of Nairobi. He thinks these meetings do not provide long-term plans to make Somalia self-sustainable. What has been achieved, uh, a new deal has been introduced, which is more of an aid uh, and delivery instrument rather than a meaningful, comprehensive post-conflict reconstruction and development uh, model for, for Somalia. We need a Marshall Plan led by the Somalis that funds and develops and reconstructs the country, including free education, the infrastructural development, through uh, job creation, as well as the reformation of strong but honest state institutions. Al-Shabaab Islamist militants continue to pose a threat in the country. The Somali National Army, which should fight them, is largely ineffective. Its soldiers are poorly equipped and barely even get paid. Much of the current international funding goes to the African Union mission in the country, AMISOM. But poverty and unemployment remain high, and maritime piracy is threatening a comeback. So at the London conference, Somalia's president, Mohamed Farmajo, will make his case for funding, not just for security, but also for economic development. Meanwhile, as Somalia looks far and wide for support, there is indifference closer home in the self-declared Republic of Somaliland. Its foreign minister, Saad Ali Shire, has been speaking to the BBC's Somali service. That conference is for matters concerning Somalia. We, the neighbors in Somaliland, care more about issues affecting the wider region. As there is no shortage of skepticism, it's up to the government of Somalia and its partners to produce tangible results from the event and prove their critics wrong. That report by the BBC's Africa security correspondent Tommy Oladipo. Let's go back in time to today in 1987. Doctors at Johns Hopkins Hospital in the U.S. transplanted the heart and lungs of an auto accident victim into a cystic fibrosis patient who gave up his own healthy heart to another recipient. Clinton House, the nation's first living heart donor, died 14 months later. That was today in history in the year 1987. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Hundreds of people protested the firing of the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation director outside the White House in Washington as the president's spokesperson revealed that he'd been considering firing James Comey since he was elected to office in January. The timing of the move has split Republican and Democrats, while the vice president dismissed suggestions that President Trump's decision had anything to do with the FBI's probe into possible connections between Russia and the Trump campaign during last year's election. A chorus of Democrats has called for a special prosecutor to be appointed to investigate the Russian allegations. Sean Brice-Peace has more. An impromptu protest outside the White House, with hundreds taking issue with the president's shock firing of the country's top law enforcement official, and not everyone is buying the reasoning that it was done over Comey's poor handling of the Hillary Clinton email saga. Tom Perez is chair of the Democratic National Committee. I am touched by this president's concern about the treatment of Hillary Clinton in this election. I mean, I am touched. The, the, I mean, Pinocchio, Pinocchio, where are you, Pinocchio? Inside the White House, a packed briefing room as questions swirled as to why the president acted now after expressing confidence in the director just days earlier. The deputy press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, did the honors. The president, over the last several months, lost confidence in Director Comey. The DOJ lost confidence in Director Comey. Bipartisan members of Congress made it clear that they had lost confidence in Director Comey. And most importantly, the rank and file of the FBI had lost confidence in their director. Accordingly, the president accepted the recommendation of his deputy attorney general to remove James Comey from his position. The vice president, Mike Pence, also appearing before cameras to defend President Trump. Let me be very clear that the president's decision to accept the recommendation of the deputy attorney general and the attorney general to remove Director Comey as the head of the FBI was based solely and exclusively on his commitment to the best interest of the American people and to ensuring that the FBI has the trust and confidence of the people of this nation. Democrats were incensed. First, Californian Senator Dianne Feinstein. At a minimum, the decision to fire Comey raises questions about the appropriateness and timing of firing the person in charge of an investigation that could, I won't say would, but could implicate the administration. To have this happen, and happen now, is beyond surprising. Vermont's Democratic Senator Patrick Lay. This is not just a scandal. The president's actions are neither Republican nor Democratic. They're authoritarian. And that report by show and Bryce Peace. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, world leaders are gathering in London for a major summit on Somalia to discuss the increasing humanitarian aid and improving security in the country. The European Union says it's committed to helping African states deal with the root causes of migration and Tunisian President Bej Sayed Essebsi has criticized the surprise resignation of the country's electoral chief just months before it's due to hold its first post revolution municipal elections. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. South Africa says it is on course to providing better housing for all as set out in the new urban agenda currently being deliberated on in Nairobi at the 26th Governing Council of UN Habitat. South Africa's Deputy Minister for Human Settlements, Zolisa Kota Fredericks, spoke on the sidelines of the conference even as protests over lack of housing continued in parts of South Africa. Sarah Kimani has more. 
World leaders are meeting in Nairobi to discuss the implementation of the new urban agenda, an action plan on how to deal with global rapid urbanization. The 20-year strategy seeks to have governments, urban developers and local authorities develop cities sustainably. Dr. Joanne Klaus is Executive Director of UN Habitat. One of the most critical vehicles for this transition is well-designed urbanization that provides a productive scenario necessary to sustain this very strategic transformation of African economy. South Africa says it is already implementing some of the provisions of the agenda. Zoliswa Kota Fredericks is the Deputy Minister for Human Settlements in South Africa. So in South Africa we are ready for implementation. The time is now. Because what is new about the Quito document, the new urban agenda, it's the issue of integration, social inclusion, the inclusive growth. She says, despite efforts to provide decent housing, access to land is still a major challenge in South Africa. In areas that land is cheap, far from town, but that land doesn't solve the problem of urbanization. As you can see, that the informal settlements are around the city centers, are around the towns. So we need well-located land within the city center so that at the end of the day we're able to build people homes closer to the places of work. She urged for patience, saying work is underway to ensure affordable housing for all. We want to make sure that our cities are safer. We want to make sure that our people are part and parcel of this development ethos going forward. So at the end of the day, the nation is at work and the housing is for all and affordable housing becomes a reality. Your urban agenda was adopted during the UN Habitat 3 summit held in Ecuador last year. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Let's go back in time to today. In 1959, professional soccer is introduced in South Africa when the National Football League was founded. The league was founded by 12 football clubs from Johannesburg and Pretoria, none of which exist today. Ted Wallace was elected as secretary of the organization. That was today in history in the year 1959. Change your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates, and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10.45am Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Nigeria has been gripped by the largest meningitis C outbreak in nine years. About six months into the epidemic, the West African nation is still battling to curb the outbreak in seven states. The disease has so far claimed the lives of over 800 people and infected thousands others. For an update on the situation, Tracy Bumgard spoke to Geke Heisman, medical coordinator for Doctors Without Borders in Nigeria. This outbreak uh, is ongoing since uh, early this year, and uh, so far we have uh, reports of uh, uh, around 10,000 cases uh, with 9% uh, mortality. So um, at the moment we see a decline uh, after the recent uh, uh, vaccinations that have been done, uh, but we still see, see cases coming in. Now which areas have been hardest hit? Uh, the northwest of uh, Nigeria um, uh, has been the hardest hit, and, and then we're talking about Sokoto State, Samfara State, uh, bordering uh, Niger and, uh, and Benin. So is the occurrence of meningitis C at this time of the year something strange in Nigeria? 
Well, every year we see uh, meningitis, uh, it's, uh, but not in this, uh, this uh, amount uh, of, of uh, cases. And uh, this year we see uh, a type of meningitis that we have not seen uh, before, uh, and that's the meningitis uh, type T. Um, so yeah, this is a new new strain for uh, for this area. Uh, the other years we have seen meningitis, and also vaccination campaigns have been done, uh, but not for this type. So now there were reports earlier this year of a major shortfall in vaccines. Are you aware of such reports, and is this still the case? Well, the the vaccines, uh, the the world global um, availability of vaccines uh, against meningitis is, um, uh, is limited. Uh, so also for uh, Nigeria, uh, we were only able to uh, obtain a limited amount of uh, vaccine. So we could not do a mass campaign that would have meant that we would have um, um, vaccinated millions of people. So what we have done now is only to vaccinate the areas with the highest uh, number of cases. Uh, of course, this means that you have to have a very good coverage um, to contain the outbreak, uh, or else it can also spread to areas where you have not seen uh, meningitis yet. How dangerous is this disease, and what are the chances of survival when a person is diagnosed early and adequate treatment begins? Yes, it's very essential that the diagnosis is made early. And uh, looking at the northwest of uh, Nigeria, uh, the primary health care provision uh, and the accessibility to primary health care is, is quite poor. Um, so um, early detection is very important. And then a short course of five days with antibiotica uh, should, should do it. Um, but yeah, we, we see a lot of late presentations. Uh, people are um, uh, unaware of, of the signs and symptoms or come, uh, and then come too late to our facility. So if you treat early, uh, the survival um, uh, is, is, is high. Uh, but yeah, at the moment we see still uh, a mortality of, of 6% uh, to 9%. So that's quite high. But that's mostly due to late presentation. That was Geke Heisman, a medical coordinator for Doctors Without Borders in Nigeria, speaking to Tracy Bumgard. A world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Yesterday marked exactly 23 years since Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as the first democratic president of South Africa. The Nelson Mandela Foundation has called on South Africans to honor him by healing the nation from the wounds of the racial discriminations now wearing its ugly head. The foundation has launched the annual Mandela Day scheduled for July the 18th. Busi Chimombe was there. On May 10, 1994, Nelson Mandela was sworn in as state president. He went on to become a statesman, adored by all across the globe. But now the Rainbow Nation, he envisaged, is facing serious challenges, with incidents of racial discrimination on the rise. His foundation appeals to the nation to heal itself from the wounds of the past. Founding trustee, Mampele Rampele. Let us work together as a people to heal the divisions of the past and to work together to uproot poverty so we can liberate the energies of all South Africans. The foundation's CEO, Silo Khatang, says Mandela Day should be used to bring change in the lives of ordinary people. Mandela Day should be used as a vehicle also 
for bringing about political change too, that you cannot have systemic corruption, that you cannot have systemic discrimination that's there in our country. And we, we just use Mandela Day by the very same politicians sometimes who then go out and then uh, do good on the day. So if politicians can do that on the day, all of us must then ask them to account on the day and say, where have you been for the other 365 days? The former president was not only revered by politicians, but by the young who also hold him in high esteem. Learners Precious Nisi from Unity Secondary School in Davidton and Anamt Mohammed from Norwood School in Johannesburg. Nelson Mandela was the first person who gave us freedom and we, are, um, we have a right as a black person because of him. So we're very grateful of what he did. They help to support Mandela for what greatness he has done to South Africa and the freedom that he has given us all. The foundation also urged the country to commemorate Mandela Day by ridding South Africa of poverty. That report by Busi Chimombe in Johannesburg. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tracy Bumgard. Thank you, Lulu. South African President Jacob Zuma is in Tanzania on a state visit to strengthen trade and investment between the two countries. He will meet his Tanzanian counterpart, John Magufuli, in Dar es Salaam this Thursday. Zuma is accompanied by six ministers and local business people. And Tebo Mokobo reports. President Zuma's visit to Tanzania is said to take economic relations between the two sister republics to a higher level. Despite the historical ties forged during struggle days, the two-way trade is still minimal at 10 billion rand. And to increase this, the two countries will sign a binational commission, as International Relations Minister Maite Nguana Mashabani explains. The binational commission gives them an opportunity to make a reflection on global politics, global economic development, but also talk about our own neighborhood in the continent. The BNC co-chaired by both presidents will monitor the implementation of all bilateral agreements signed between the two nations. An IMF delegation is in Cairo to review Egypt's progress on its economic reforms. This is a condition for dispersing the second installment of the loan program. The reforms include subsidy cuts and introducing a value-added tax. New head of the IMF's Middle East Department, Jihad Azor, says that lowering inflation is key to keeping the country's economic reform program on track. Egypt's central bank raised interest rates 3% when it floated the pound in November. Inflation is expected to keep rising as the government pushes on with more economic reforms. The central bank left rates unchanged at its last four monetary policy meetings, but bankers and economists say more rate increases are likely as inflationary pressures rise with the implementation of reforms. Egypt's Central Bank's Monetary Policy Committee is due to meet on May 21st to discuss interest rates. South Africa's Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba says an assessment is being conducted on whether to sell parts of the South African Airways to strategic equity partners. Gigaba was answering questions in the National Assembly. Former Finance Minister Pravin Godan and the Public Enterprises Department explored the idea of exploring a public-private airline partnership. Gigaba says an advisory body has been appointed to conduct a comprehensive assessment before a final decision is taken. The work is complete and the next steps is for government to review the options and recommendations to allow an informed decision to be taken on how to proceed including alignment to the review currently underway on SAA's long-term turnaround strategy by CIPERI. The review by government will determine whether strategic equity partners, if any, would become part of the ownership structure of the state-owned airline assets. Thank you. 
A review of the South African Broadcasting Corporation's funding model and programs that are not viable will form part of the public broadcaster's turnaround strategy. This is according to Communications Minister Ayanda Dlodlo, who was answering questions in the National Assembly. Inkata Freedom Party Member of Parliament Narendra Singh wanted to know whether there were any plans to shut or discontinue unviable programs. One of the things that we have were doing is to check which of um, the television and radio programs are unprofitable, where we have suffered losses in terms of viewership and listenership, but also looking at ensuring that where we have suffered those losses, what are the reasons for that, and if we can turn around the situation. The turnaround strategy will address all of the issues that, uh, that you're raising, but also looking at a different funding model to ensure, to ensure the sustainability of, uh, of the SAPC. That's what we're also looking at. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.53 South African Rand, at 10.42 Botswana Pula and at 9.14 Zambia and Kwacha. It's also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and at 0.91 to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,219 and platinum at $912 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $50.40 a barrel. Thank you, Tracy. Our sports update up next with Figile Lungwati. First up in our sports update this hour, betting off with cricket news. The Proteas take on Ireland today in the ongoing women's quadrangular series in Pochestrum, Northwest Province, before coming up against all three sides again next week. The Proteas suffered their first defeat of the women's quadrangular series as they lost to India by seven wickets on Tuesday. After two matches, India topped the standing with South Africa in second place. After the round stage of the competition, the two top teams will compete for the title. Proteas standing captain Sunny Luce says they need to be more clinical in their next game. And on to football news, South African national under-20 team head coach Thabo Sinong is showing a brave face and says the team is not phased by the three players who are missing from the team and has left everything in the hands of the South African Football Association administrators. Amajita left for Suwon in South Korea where they will take part in the FIFA Under-20 World Cup getting underway next weekend. Absent from this 21-man squad are two Bidvers Vets players, Reeve Frosler and Pagamani Mashambi. And Super Sports United's Debo Their clubs are refusing to release them. And Sinong says this has not affected the morale in the team. Amajida have been drawn in Group D against Japan, Italy and Uruguay. They meet in the Asian Champions in the opening game in Suwon on the 21st of this month. And next Monday, they will play an international friendly against Costa Rica. Real Madrid inflicted a fourth Champions League elimination on Atletico Madrid in as many years last night, losing their semi-final second league 2-1, but progressing to their final 4-2 on aggregate. Atletico had threatened an incredible comeback. Saul Niguez's powerful header and Antoine Griezmann's penalty inside 16 minutes, cutting Real's aggregate, lead to a solitary goal. The Hoos fed off a ferocious atmosphere of the final Champions League match at the Vicente Calderon before moving to Wanda Metropolitano next season. However, Isco's away goal just before halftime settled Real's nerves and left Atletico with too much to do to progress. Cristiano Ronaldo's first leg hat-trick ultimately proved decisive and Real will seek to become the first side to defend the trophy in Champions League era when they face Juventus in the final in Cardiff on the 3rd of May. Meanwhile, Heineken marketing manager Temba Ratsibe says they have extended their relationship with UEFA Champions League for another three years. Ratsibe says popularity of the competition is the reason that prompted them to strengthen the partnership. I think we've realized as Heineken that globally 
um, our Heineken fans out there really, really love soccer. It's the biggest passion point in the world. So that is the reason why we initially started the relationship with uh, UEFA Champions League. But then over time, we saw that uh, the, the relationship has grown. We've also just announced that we've extended our contract with the UEFA Champions League for another three years. Um, so which is music to, to our fans' ears. They really love hearing those sort of things. Um, and we feel really humbled and really privileged that we've got the sponsorship and it enables us to continue to bring great experiences like this um, to your listeners and to our Heineken fans out there. And in golf news, Rory McIlroy returns to the PGA Tour this week with a wedding ring and a new equipment contract reportedly worth 100 million US dollars. McIlroy also has a 10-year deal with Nike Clothing, which was extended last month and is reportedly worth 200 million US dollars over 10 years. A 28-year-old from Northern Ireland finished tied for seventh at the Masters in April. Yeah, it's been great. Like the last few weeks have been have been really cool. Um, obviously, got married and went on honeymoon and enjoyed that. Um, got back home to Florida last Thursday. I've been trying to lose a bit of weight before this week, and that's sort of been the try to try to shed a few pounds before here. But um, yeah, you know, everything's everything's been great. I mean, I, I feel like my game's in good shape. I needed to address a few issues um, in between Augusta and here, and I, I did that sort of with the first 10 days after Augusta and then turned my attentions elsewhere. Um, but, but feel really good coming into, you know, coming into this event. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, the DRC opposition slammed President Kabila's new transitional government. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma begins state visit to Tanzania and leaders gather in London for a conference on Somalia. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magadza and Tlantlamatlangu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa is the legendary Bob Marley with a song titled Africa Unite.
Africa. Oh.